Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we're reading 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This is God's word. Let's pray for the message. Heavenly Father, we just thank you um, and praise you once again for your word. Lord, it is truly nourishment for our soul. We ask that you would be with our preacher as he brings forth your word. Help it to be powerful in, in our lives. Help it to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, welcome once again. I'm the, uh, if you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge Church, and it's always a delight to be with you this morning. Um, every Lord's Day, we get to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, we have a special um, treat of uh, having a potluck after, and everyone's welcome. So please uh, make sure that you stick around for that, um, uh, and just enjoy the good food. I'm going to beat you to the deviled eggs, though. I might tackle you on the way. Um, but um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And also, by the way, after, after the um, potluck, we're going to have just a quick members meeting. So if you're a member of our church... We'll probably just go off into some room together. We'll, we'll kind of let you know. We'll blink the lights or something. And we're, we have a quick members meeting to discuss some things um, about just, you know, business type items and just church family related things. So please stick around for that. Some important things we want to talk with you about. So um, if you could do that, we'd appreciate it. Okay. Um, this morning, we're returning a little bit to our text that we were in last week. We're going through um, this New Testament letter called First Peter. And it's called that because there are two letters written by Peter in the New Testament, and this is the first one that we have. Um, that's why it's called First Peter. But Peter writes a letter uh, to a church in Asia Minor to encourage th their faith because they're going through immense trial and suffering, grief. And we wanted to go through this to encourage the saints to build each other up um, in Christ with what God's word says when suffering comes to you and to, to me, when grief kind of crosses our doorstep. Um, how, how is it that we're going to, what tools do, does the Bible give us and equip us with to handle this? This morning, I kind of wanted to, to zone in a little bit on this word inheritance. Last week, we talked about some pillars of, of, what, of how God just encourages us during times of trouble, the things that we can stand on, the legs that we have as Christians to continue. Um, but I wanted to, to, to really focus this morning on this word inheritance. The word inheritance in scripture basically means that which constitutes one as an heir. That's what the definition of inheritance means in scripture. It constitutes one as an heir. Some of you might have received an inheritance. You might have been an heir from a loved one, um, and they passed away, and there are different items that there were part of their belongings or the possessions that they wanted to distribute to the people that they loved. That makes you their heir. And some of you might, might have gone through that, and I know some of you have recently gone through that. Scripture says that every believer in Jesus Christ is an heir of an inheritance, an inheritance of God himself. So it basically means, the word inheritance means that we will, we will acquire something. We will possess something. There's something that we lack now, that we don't have right now, that at some point we will possess. The psalmist, if you read through the psalms, 
is filled with turning to this idea of inheritance as a solace for times of trouble. When they're going through trial or tribulation, Psalm 16:6 says, Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance in spite of the circumstances of my life right now. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Psalm chapter 25, His soul shall abide in safety, and his offspring will inherit the land. He's reminding himself of all the goodness of God, the gifts of God that are yet to come, that are unrealized, but are promised by the faithfulness of our Lord's word. What is that inheritance? Well, in Ezekiel chapter 44, it tells us, this shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. The Lord our God is our inheritance. He is our possession. He is what we will inherit. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about this, if you recall, in the New Testament. You just kind of flip forward if you're in the Old Testament. Jesus says that you will inherit the earth, eternal life, and the kingdom prepared by the Father. So here's this, all this language of what is promised to believers in Jesus, that there's an inheritance. A lot of times in our culture, inheritance usually is money, right? Like there's a sum of money, a sale of a house, things like this. But in Scripture, the inheritance is so much more personal and relational. The gospel, again, promises that we will inherit the earth, we will inherit eternal life, that we will inherit the kingdom prepared by the Father. In Mark 10, in one of the gospels in the New Testament, in many places, by the way, throughout the gospels, we're, we're often, Jesus is often asked this question, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, another place in Scripture, makes clear that sinners will not inherit eternal life. The unrighteous will not inherit eternal life. And that's a problem for us because the Bible makes clear in Romans chapter 3 and many other places that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all unrighteous because of our sin. Yet because of the goodness of God in Christ, by His grace, you have been saved and given his righteousness, his goodness, his moral purity that we lacked. We are made clean, we are made whole. So in Galatians, the inheritance, we're told, is not earned by being good or by doing good works of the law, but by God's promise, because, we're all, because we are all lawbreakers. And then in Ephesians, this other, other great letter in the New Testament, it, it makes plain that in Christ we receive this inheritance. It's in the work of Christ that we receive it. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the new birth that we talked about last week, that's the guarantee that the inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. So what the goal is now as a Christian is very plain. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see, what Paul's saying there is that the goal of the spiritual life, if you're a Christian this morning, the purpose of your Christianity, the purpose of your new birth is for you to, in your life, more fully understand what's in store for you. The riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. Very often we get tripped up in the spiritual life, in the Christian life, because that's not what we're fixed on. We're, fit, we're more fixed on an earthly inheritance, the things that we so desire now that are made of the materials that God has made. But God says, fix your eyes on these things. 
The Father is the one who has qualified us, made us pure, brought us to faith in Christ so that we can receive his inheritance, described often in Scripture as our salvation. It's an inheritance, if you remember last week we read this in Peter, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. When you make a hotel reservation, do you keep the reservation or does the hotel keep it? The hotel keeps it. If they don't keep it, you don't got one. <laughs> right? You could show up. I made the reservation. No, listen, we don't have you here, Mr. DeGagney. It's not on here. Well, you, you should have kept it. People make mistakes, but God does not. God is in heaven right now holding your, reserva- your reservation. And the reason he can do that and be just and right is because Jesus paid for it with his blood. It's paid for. In Scripture, the believer's inheritance, very simply, is heaven. So this morning, I love this because I want to talk to you about something very simple. I want to talk to you about heaven. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. It's difficult to even talk about it, being so far removed from it. We're obviously not there. We get a window into what God promises about it from his word. So I I sort of tread lightly on holy ground here, understanding that I am the last person that is able to describe heaven to you. We need the Lord's help for this, don't we? But I want to talk about heaven this morning. Heaven is described, I love this. This is how heaven is described in scripture, as rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9. There remains then a rest for the people of God. Heaven is rest. And that's what I want to talk about this morning with you. What does that mean? What does it mean that we will have once and for all and finally rest? So I want to talk about what what the Bible describes heaven as, is that rest. That is our inheritance. Our inheritance in heaven is rest. It's how the Bible describes the emotional and physical condition of every single person entering into God's presence in heaven for eternity. Rest is the deliverer's, excuse me, is the believer's inheritance. Rest is the quality of life for eternity for God's people. I'm not going to really describe in detail too much how we're assured of this rest, how one becomes a believer in Christ. Um, in describing that process in full, except to say that the Bible says the way that you're guaranteed this rest is by being born again. You need to be alive. You need to see God for who he is and see yourself for, for who he is. That's what being born again means. It means that you need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, that you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ died for that sin. When you put your trust in him, the Bible says you're born again and you are given the guarantee of eternal life. You see, that's the how. But this morning, I'm not so much, so much wanting to talk about the how as to the what. What does this rest mean? So this morning, let's do three things. <clears throat> let's talk about what heaven's rest means, what it presumes, and what it includes. What it means, what it presumes, and what it includes. And by the way, there's a wonderful little book called um, The Saint's Everlasting Rest. It's by an old Puritan, so it's kind of tough to read, but it's really fantastic. And it's by Richard Baxter. Um, if, you, if you're interested, he's really helped me in understanding just a little bit more about this great topic of heaven. 
He basically says this about, as far as what it means. Rest is all the ease and safety which a soul wearied with the burden of sin and suffering has with Christ in eternal glory. I'll read that again. Rest is all the ease and safety which a soul wearied with the burden of sin and suffering has with Christ in eternal glory. It is ease. It is safety. It is home. That's what it is. The sinner's slate is wiped clean once and for all. Everything about you is made perfect and about this, this um, earth is made perfect. Everything about our relationship with our Father in heaven is complete. We're perfectly received by him in heaven, embraced by him. So this rest, friends, is a perfect happiness. Isn't that great? Your rest, what heaven is, is a perfect, uninterrupted happiness. Founded in the relationship between God and his people. It's completely and fully realized. And because of that, you and I will be completely and fully happy. Happiness, oh, isn't this great? Happiness is the end goal of your salvation in Christ. That's the goal. Not happiness in materials. Not happiness in another home or a beach house. Happiness in a perfectly completed relationship with Jesus Christ, through our, with our Father, through Jesus Christ. That's what happiness is. And that's what we get completely in heaven. Rest in the Christian life right now. What does this imply? Well, it's incomplete. If we're not at rest yet, if that life to come is described as rest, it would just be safe to assume that right now we do experience it to a degree, but it's incomplete. It's not whole yet. If heaven's rest is rest in its most full and realized degree, then the Christian life, as glorious and as wonderful as it can be, is going to fall short of it. In other words, even as a Christian right now, this is not heaven. There's something still off about it. There's something that we still lack about it. And Richard Baxter, what an amazing statement he makes. Oh, that we did all heartily and strongly believe that we will never be truly happy until then. That we should not so dote upon a seeming happiness here. Isn't that profound? Oh, he says, that we, that we would heartily and strongly believe that we will never be truly happy until then. That, that way, everyone else is off the hook. You don't expect everything in your life to make you fully and completely happy anymore. And then when they don't, you're mad at them. And you're disappointed and angry at life. Right? Oh, that we would truly believe that our happiness, our joy, will be made full and only will be made full on that day when Jesus comes for us. Amen? For now, it says in Scripture, for now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now we see in part. Now we see an incomplete version of ourselves and even of God. But then we will see completely and wholly. So everything that is incomplete here will not be there. 
our incomplete holiness. Man, sometimes we just keep messing up, right? Well, it won't be incomplete there. It will be complete. Our incomplete Christ-likeness, our incomplete joy, our incomplete fruit, our incomplete love, all will be made complete then. And friends, in the Christian life, I think we can experience the life-giving nature of all of these things. But they're still falling short of something. God is leading us to their full satisfaction. They are just a dim hint of what's in store for us. How many people here have known the love of Christ? Have known the joy that comes from that? That you've been saved and forgiven? That God has a, a plan for you and a hope for your life? How exhilarating that can be. Well, friends, that is just a dim hint of what's in store for you when he comes. That's heaven. The inheritance received in the life to come is just a fullness we have not known. Full peace, full joy, full happiness, perfect rest. Let's talk a little bit now about what does this all presume? If this rest is made complete in eternity when Christ has come, what does it presume now about life? I've already kind of hinted at some of these things. But what does heaven's rest, that future and final inheritance, presume? And I think if we're going to understand more fully what the Bible means about heaven and and what we will inherit as God's people, it's important to consider what this presumes about life now. So let's talk about some of these presumptions. The first presumption is that the Christian life is a working life, a life in motion. We have not arrived at rest yet. Doesn't it presume that about the Christian life? There is something incomplete about the Christian life. Something that we know, though it's incomplete, will be completed. So our motion, our working... When God saves us and gives us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, that we are forgiven sinners, that he loves us and is coming for us, as, as great as that can be, we, we set our course towards him. And it is just that, a course. And it is an incomplete course. It's a journey. It's a working. That completion, that end, the rest, is God himself. We saw that in Ezekiel 44. This is their inheritance. I am their inheritance. So the Christian life is a life in motion. It's motioning towards possessing God completely and fully when he comes. And that possession is our rest. You cannot, friend, get to heaven or gain heaven by sitting still. God wakes us. God gives us eyes to see and then motions us towards him. You see, friends, that is what the new birth does. It puts us on a course. It sets us on a life of affection for our relationship of God, with God to be fully satisfied at the end of time. So the Christian life is a life of motion, of motioning to possess God more fully. And when we possess him fully, that is our rest. So friends, we cannot gain heaven by sitting still. He makes us alive. He gives us an affection for him. He sets our hope and our joy and our goals towards him. You are an object, if you are in Christ, you are an object set in motion by God's grace for the purpose of reaching perfect relationship with him. Isn't that great? 
Number two, what else does this presume? A distance, a, a period of time that seems so often so long to us is set for this incomplete rest to presume. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. You see, we're not in our rest. So things are in decay. Things are incomplete. But he says, don't lose heart, and here's why. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our lights and momentary troubles are achieving for us in eternal glory. So there is a moment of time where we need to endure, where we need to break down and endure. At the same time, Scripture says that there's something about us that is incomplete and breaking down, but there's also something about the Christian life that is heading towards something. There is a renewal that is going to be granted to you. Isn't that fantastic? So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So what is seen is temporary. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes in the decay. You know, friends, I, I know that all of us go through life and we see things decay. We see, we see our own bodies decay at times as we, as we age. Sometimes we, we witness the, 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 the breakdown of a marriage or a friendship. We watch things suffer and fall apart and die. But there is the spiritual life that God has granted to us in Christ is not that. But what we carry now until then is the reminder that we're not there yet. That there is a distance, a period of time that we need to endure through and have a goal to the end. It's that in-between that leaves us with trouble and unrest. Amen? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. If you recall, we read this last week. And all this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. For a little while. You see, that's what I mean here, friends, about the presumption of heaven's rest. That there is a distance, a little while, a period of time that we have to go through where we lack it, you see? Now, how many people have ever had small children in their life? Okay, most of you. But, um, so if you've ever had a small child and you're going on a car ride, they tend to lack a certain amount of patience in the car. Um, and I know this, I have some kids, and usually if it's past 15 minutes, Oh, that's, this is far, and like when we, this is way too far. We're going all the way. Grandma's is okay. It's five minutes down the road. But if we're going to Boston, that's like driving to California for them. If you, so if you've ever had any small children, you, you just kind of know that they get relatively impatient in those short, even short car rides. So they ask me questions like, when, Dad, when are we going to be there? Are we almost there? Are we there yet? Right? No. The car's moving. We're not there yet. Obviously. So when, when, are we, when will we be there, Dad? So what's our reply? Well, in a, little, in a little while, we say. We are almost there. 15 minutes, even if it's two hours. 15 minutes, we'll be there. Sometimes I tell them, because kids, how do, how do they understand time at a certain age? They don't really understand what an hour is. So I tell them, like, it's about as long as one of your cartoons. And that helped once. No, I remember saying that to Noelle for the first time when she went, oh, that's not bad. 
Because <laughs> she knew it worked. Father of the year. Um, so that's what we say, though. In a little while, honey. We're almost there. Don't worry. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8. He says this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What, a, what an amazing verse to just remember, especially when times are hard. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. The glory that's coming. Now, why is that? Why is the glory to come not worthy of comparison to our suffering in time? Well, I think that part of the reason is that because even though we do go through a distance of suffering and grief, it's a little distance. It's a little while. It's 15 more minutes, right? We have this word from our good God in heaven who says, when we cry out to him and say, God, you hear us, God, how long? And he says, we're almost there to you. You're almost there, friends. You're almost there. Even enemies in scripture have a short time. So their opposition towards God's people and God himself is short-lived. If you remember this in the Gospels, in, in Luke chapter 22, when I was daily, Jesus is saying this, he says, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. They're, they're arresting Jesus now. They're about to kill him. And he says, hey, when I was in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, friends, darkness is allowed and it stinks, and it's hard, and it's heavy, but it's, an o it's only an hour long, and an hour is not very long. You see, because Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he ends that darkness, and we live in his light forever. So it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Amen? It is but a short time. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, Revelation chapter 12, and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath. And oh, what a great wrath it is. And he has his great wrath. You know why? Because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. He's got an hour. And that hour is the hour that we know our pain and our suffering and our grief and our loss. But friends, Jesus is coming back. And he is going to step on him. And he's going to end it. The sojourner's journey for the Christian. Oh, it can be arduous. It even said it there. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because the devil has but a short time. It is a time of woe. It is a time of grief and of pain. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be not easy, if that makes sense. It can be so dark and it can be so pressing that even Christ himself would sweat drops of blood and weep for his friend Lazarus. Pain is real. Grief is real. But it's short. It's an hour long. And he is coming quickly. Amen? And everything that you lost here, whether it be your fault or not, you get back in Christ. You get his love. You get his safety. You get his affirmation. You get his applause. You get that from your good father in heaven. That's what you get. So if you lost all that stuff here, you get it from him there. Isn't that, oh, rejoice, friend. Rejoice. Come to Christ repent and believe the gospel what's better than that what promises you this it's unfading it does not perish it's reserved in heaven for you by the power of god come to christ 
Paul's point is simple in Romans. If this affliction is so weighty and so hard and so difficult and is just for a moment, how much more will the happiness and joy and peace be when he comes? And that never ends. You see, that's not an hour. That's not a little while. That's life. There, there, um, I've said this before, but there was this very famous evangelist that I, 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 think, um, I think it was D.L. Moody. I always forget if it was him or, or someone else or if it was Spurgeon. But um, he was very famous, and he was worldwide and very well, very well known in the world. And he said, one day you're going to read in the papers that you know, old D.L. Moody has died because he was very famous and like, you know, Billy Graham dying, we, we're just going to know about it, right? So he says, one day you're going to read that, Billy, uh, that, that, D, that old D.L. Moody is, has died. He, he says this, don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? I will be more alive there than I ever was here. More alive. More alive there than I ever was here. Friends, he is coming. It is but a short time. The third presumption is that that if this rest in store for us is coming for us, the third presumption about our life is that we know, number one, that we don't have it now, and number two, we know how to get it. We know that we don't have it, and we know how to get it, okay? I once lost my debit card. You guys have ever done this? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like you've lost your baby, right? It's, you've, you have that much, maybe a little less fear than that. But, you know, when you lose your debit card, you know, everything just kind of stops if you lose your wallet, something like this. Uh, you, it doesn't matter what you do. You mean heart surgery. You're going to start looking for this thing. Well, maybe you shouldn't do that. But, um, so I once lost my debit card, and I, I didn't know it, though. Right? Um, and then a period of time went by, and then I realized I went for it. You guys know that moment when like, you're about to buy something, and you go for your card, and it's not in the sleeve that it normally is. Maybe, and maybe you, you start a little panicking a little bit, right? So you start looking in other credit card slots. Maybe I put it in the wrong one. And you start like going, leafing all around. It's not in there. Step number two. What's step number two? The car, right? Maybe it's under my seat, <laughs> right? Maybe like I start looking all around. And like th- then step number three is like, okay, where have I been? You know, you start thinking about, you know, when is the last time I, I know I used it? So you're, you're doing all this stuff. It's amazing how anxious we get over stupid things, right? So, like, so that's what you do. So that's, what, that's the process that I was going through. I lost my, my debit card. I couldn't find it. And I started going through these, like, these mental exercises trying to find it. I didn't know I had lost it yet, though. I didn't know it was gone. When I realized it, I kind of set in motion this kind of duty to, to find it. Um, th- in this instance, I actually got a phone call so a, little bit, a little bit of time after. I got a phone call at a restaurant that I had been the day before. And they said, uh, Mr. DeGagney, you left your debit card here. Oh, great, okay. So what is the first thing I did? Got my car, and I set on my journey to get my debit card back. Right, that's what we do. We know where it is now. Okay, I'm gonna go get it. I needed that thing back. If I didn't have it, I w- you know, it's a pain in the butt. That's how I buy everything. So some time went by, and I received this call, and I kind of set on pace to go retrieve what I had lost. Once I knew it was lost, and once I knew where it was, that began my journey to get it back. See? Once I knew it was lost, and once I knew where it was, that began my journey to get it back. Friends, can I suggest to you that there are many people 
in life, I would even suggest that most people recognize that there is something wrong. There is something incomplete about themselves, but they don't know where to get it back. You see, they're looking under their car seat. They're looking in their glove compartment. They're looking all over the place except for where it is. The Bible says very clearly where it is. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Let's, let's rephrase that a little bit. Coming to the Father is a, a reunited relationship with God in heaven. It's heaven, okay? It's rest. So let's read this again. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to rest except by me. Oh, friend, it's not in anything but in Christ. Your rest is not found anywhere but him. You see, maybe you know you lost it, or maybe you've realized it hasn't been there, but can I introduce you to the door, the bread of life, the water of life, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, what we can presume about heaven's rest is that life includes two things. We realize we don't have it now, but in Christ we realize that when we go after him, we'll get it with him. Amen? He's the door. He's the way to the Father. And faith is the way to Christ. Your emotion will never be set to Christ if you have not realized that your rest has been robbed and that Christ is its only recovery. So come to Christ. Finally, it's presumed that the Christian is in motion constantly and with strong desire for this rest. This is what Scripture says about the Christian life. That once you come to realize that your life is incomplete outside of heaven and the completion that you'll realize in Him, you begin to constantly and with strong desire pursue that end. It doesn't mean we don't get distracted. It doesn't mean we don't forget about it. But a Christian, a real one, a real Christian, who is not just a Christian in word only, but also in deed, is a person that continues the pursuit. You can't escape it. There, was a, there have been times in my life, I've, I've been a Christian since I was 15, so 23 years. There have been times in that tw- on those 23 years where I got distracted. I got my sin on, right? Forget this, I'm mad, whatever. I'm just going to go do my thing, my sin thing right? But friends, because I was in Christ, I couldn't escape him. I knew. I knew this isn't going to satisfy. It was crippling. I had to come back. I had to come back to the only life-giving source that I ever knew of. You see, because that's what happens when you become born again. When you're given those eyes to see, you are given a thirst, an affection for Christ that does not go away, that it's, it's preserved by God's power himself. A Christian is one in deed, not one in word only, as they continue this pursuit of Christ their end with strong desire. Amen? Friends, a Christian is not and never will be satisfied with God's gifts. We are only satisfied with God himself. So God can give us stuff, give us a nice car, a nice job, but we're not satisfied with those things. That's, that's what makes you a Christian. You need him. You need his relationship. You need his love. That's what you're after. 
You want God. You want it more than money. You want it more than other relationships. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Something turned on. He knew that everything he ever wanted in life was Jesus Christ. He started to realize it. And that changed his whole life from the beginning and to the end. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Gain because death for the believer is transformation. It is full satisfaction of a completed relationship with our Heavenly Father. So friends, as we continue to hold these, these are sacred things right in our laps. Let's, let's go to the next thing now. What does the rest include? We, we, we examined a little bit about what it presumes. What does it include? When we enter into his presence, what does it mean that we're at rest? Number one, the believer's movement ends. It's done. It's not to say that heaven is an eternal lazy boy. That's not what I'm saying. There's no work there. What I am saying that the, the journey home is over. The sojourner has arrived. You're there in his presence, face to face. That which we were working towards, motioning to in our Christian life has been satisfied in heaven. That which we lacked, we moved to possess in our, in our Christian life, now we possess it. When Mandy and I were engaged, um, that set in motion all sorts of activity, right? And anyone who's ever been engaged knows this. Invitations. Um, we were going, I, well, at least I was going to the gym a lot more, right? Get my butt in shape. <laughs> Dresses, tuxes, cakes, foods, colors, all these different, don't sit, sit these people together because they don't like each other. Or do sit them together because they don't like each other. Maybe they'll work it out. Um, we were working towards an end, and that was our marriage, our wedding day. So our engagement season was a season of, we, it was a directed goal. We were working towards something that was the completion of something, right? And that was our marriage. When we, uh, <clears throat> we were not married, we were preparing for our marriage, but when that day arrived, that preparation ceased. It was done. It's the day, right? And on that day, I didn't know Mandy in part, like I had prior. I knew her completely. You see, friends, what a great illustration of what it means to be a Christian. Because now we know our Savior and our Lord in part. But then we will know him completely. Now we prepare for the coming of the bridegroom. But then will be the wedding. You see what I mean now by the believer's movement ends? There's no more distance between my wife and I on our marriage. There's no more distance between God and I. See, when he comes. Everything for the Christian that was a means to an end will cease. There won't be prayer in heaven anymore because there'll be no more need. There'll be no more weeping in heaven anymore because there'll be no more death, no more separation. You won't have to resist the flesh or Satan anymore because he is forever banished from God's presence. Preaching is done. You say, well, I can't wait for that. We don't need, well, we won't, I won't need to teach you about God because God will be there teaching you about himself. No more sacraments, no more baptisms, no more Lord's Supper, never knowing fear again. Never again will we labor or be tricked by cheap substitutes of God's love. Isn't that great? 
That's the day in store for us. The believer's movement, his motion, is done. Number two, the rest contains an end to all life's evils that are ever so present on the way. There are so many difficulties and challenges, sinful tendencies in us and even outside of us that attack us. This broken world that so often we are the victim of. Friends, the rest is an end to all of that. That's your inheritance. When the Bible says, rejoice in the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, that's what it's talking about. That's heaven. That's the saints' inheritance. Never again will there be anything in you that is impure or me. No more reviling. No more hating. No more jealousy. No more prejudice. It's gone. Gone forever. Can you imagine? I'll never think the thought again, what did they mean by that? What did they mean by that? You know, I was standing right here. They didn't shake my hand. (laughs) I'll never think that again. Isn't that great? The pure life of a holy heart will be forever yours. It's going to be a rest from a fallen nature. But more than that, a rest from sickness. You guys, this morning, might be suffering from some aching joints or knees or shoulders. Eyes that don't work as well as they used to. Right? You're in your ninth month, friend. You're about to be born into eternal life. You see, friends, death for the Christian is not anything to fear. It is life. It is transformation. It's rest from old age. It's rest from aching joints and weak knees. It's rest from all those all-consuming fears, things that you just, you don't, you can't seem to shake it. I just always seem to be anxious by such and such or this or that thing. Well, it's gonna, that's going to be gone too. Because he who is our life you will be in his presence. You'll see him as he is, and you will be like him, 1 John 2, 2, because you will see him as he is. You will be just like him, holy, perfect, pure, never afraid again. Can you imagine? Wow. Indeed, one, one person once said, indeed, a gale of groans and sighs, a stream of tears accompany us to the gates of heaven, but there they will bid us Farewell forever. Oh, glory. Number three. The rest contains the perfection of body and soul. And I like this one. You've got to hear this one. Imagine for a moment you were born blind. You couldn't see from day one. Okay, You don't have any sight. You only can feel and hear and things like this. So, so never for a moment you don't see the beauty of a sunset you don't know the, 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 just like the power of just someone smiling at you even, what that means and what that, how that makes you feel. You can never see the crowds or you know, players take the field. None of, the, none of these sights that we all take for granted and enjoy have you ever seen. No, no birds, no colors, no trees. Um, you've never seen your children's eyes, right? You've been, you've been blind your whole life. Now suppose that one day you're given sight. You can see. All of a sudden you can see. Okay but it's an imperfect sight. So it's a little fuzzy, and it's all gray. But you can see now. 
You had not seen anything before, but now you can see. It's a little fuzzy, it's a little gray, but it's much better than what it was before. Now you can see people. You can see what they look like. You can see their facial expressions, right? All these different things. Now you can see all the things that you wanted to see before but can't. But there's still something a bit incomplete about it. There's still something that is lacking. Because your body is not as perfect as it could be. It's better, but it's not as perfect as it could be. So no colors and imperfect clarity. Friends, the more perfect your body and the more perfect your soul, the more thrilling the view. You see? Friends, that is what life will be when we're there. When we enter heaven's gates, our bodies are perfect and our souls are perfect. So it's like all of a sudden we saw God in black and white, but now we see him in color. We saw him in part, but now we see face to face. You see, because even though the Christian life means that we're new, that we realize things that we didn't before, that we have access to a certain kind of peace and joy, and, and sonship, and all these different things the Bible promises us in the Christian life, it is still incomplete. We've, given, we've been given a little bit of sight, but there is a sight to come that is perfect. You remember watching um, Wizard of Oz for the first time, and everything's in black and white, and then Dorothy opens the door to Oz, and it's all this brilliant color. It still sort of takes your breath away, even though we've seen movies in color. It, it's, wow. Like, imagine that, what, like, we thought it was this, but it's really... We thought it was good, but it's really great. You see, that's what it's like, friends. That's what it means. Your bodies will be made perfect. Your souls will be made perfect. And it says this in 1 John 2, too. You will be like him on that day because you will see him as he is. No more objections. No more doubts. Right? Perfect sight. No longer fuzzy, perfect sight. The more perfect the sight, the more beautiful the object. Amen? The more perfect the sight, the more beautiful the object. And friends, that's what rest is. You get a perfectly clear picture of who God is and what his love means and all of that wonderful, all those wonderful gifts. We will be like him because we will see him as he is as he is now we look in a mirror dimly but then face to face finally let's just say this one more thing this rest contains the complete fruition of our relationship with god nothing is in his way anymore nothing not the limitations of our own physical life not not the persistence of uh, nagging sins not satan with his opposition it's all gone god in the perfect relationship that we'll experience with him, God is the rest. God is the inheritance. God is the joy that was once fuzzy and out of focus is now clear and brilliant. God is the sweet honey. Now this, Jesus said this in John chapter 17 when he's praying for us. Can you imagine this? Now this is eternal life that you might know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is heaven, according to Jesus, that you might perfectly know God? It sounds very intellectual, right? The, the word know. But it's more than that. Because the word know in the Bible, let's just say it, it meant sex. It meant marital intimacy. 
in the Old Testament, that word is used over and over. So there's an intimate bond to know God, to know Christ in that way. It's a mystery. It's not the same. But it's, it's similar in the sense that to know God is to be one with God. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have, have given me because you have loved me before the creation of that's heaven. To be with him, to see him as he is, to see his glory uninterrupted. You no longer have to look at him while trying to move other things out of the way because there are other, maybe other things that have your affection. So friend, Christian friend, take heart, rejoice. The time is near. The journey is short. Everything that Christ has done for his people leads them to their rest. That's your inheritance in Christ. Friends, did you know that Jesus wept and he sorrowed and he suffered and he was tortured and he was crucified on a cross all to bring his people to this rest, to know him. He did the work for you, so stop doing the work and trust in Jesus. That's where our joy is made full. That's where we'll weep no more. That's where that bride, God's people, is presented to the bridegroom without spot or wrinkle. That's where the feast is consumed. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and find your rest. Amen? Let's pray.